Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. My name is Kevin. And I'm Gorf. Hey, Kev, you want a fun fact? Oh, wow. Here we go again. What is this one? <laughs> Did you know that in Happy Meals, McDonald's almost included bubblegum flavored broccoli, but it died in, in focus groups? No, no, but legit. Think about this. In Happy Meals, they were going to give broccoli that tasted like bubblegum. So it appealed to kids. But in focus groups, <laughs> the kids thought it tasted strange. But doesn't what doesn't shock me is that they were thinking about doing this. What shocks me is that it worked in at least some way that they got it to focus groups. This means, Kev, that there was someone who made broccoli that tasted like bubblegum and then did it so well that McDonald's executive was like, okay, let's focus group this. That means there are kids out there that tasted broccoli that tasted like bubblegum. This exists in the world and it was canned by McDonald's. Well, speaking of great innovators, this week on the podcast, we have Matt McGowan. He is currently the director and general manager at Snapchat Canada. Since getting his MBA at Oxford, he has been involved in so many huge deals and companies. He once served as the head of strategy at Google. Yeah, and we are so glad uh, to be able to talk to him uh, for this episode. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about our learnings and reflections uh, so far during the podcast. I was able to actually recommend content from our episodes to help uh, my friends uh, do better or improve uh, in their current interview process and storytelling process. Uh, so one of my friends uh, recently shared about an awkward situation they ran into uh, during an interview, and which reminded me of uh, one of Tara's stories uh, during uh, our very first episode, uh, where she completely missed uh, the interview and then uh, how she handled it and turned that into a success. And I was able to uh, recall that story and recommend it to my friend uh, to draw from that experience and uh, improve their own storytelling skills. So uh, I think that is something we always set out to do, uh, to be able to uh, derive actionable insights and recommendations for people around us to help them learn as much as we do. Um, hearing ourselves talk and hearing ourselves do this podcast, we're learning so much. Like for example, I can't see a toy now without thinking, okay, how does this fit into the story? How does this toy make me a part of the story? How would it make me um, engage even deeper into these stories? Because when we talked to Chris Connolly about extending the story through Disney parts and through Disney toys, we learned so much about truly extending the story through product. We are not expert storytellers, but what we're doing is we're learning in public. And without further ado, let us get to the con. So Matt, to start us off, what is your story? <laughs> Hi guys, good to be here. Um, Kurt, I, I'm the GM and uh, director here at Snapchat Canada. I guess what, what gets me out of bed in the morning, like my story can all be written around um, pretty much steep learning curves and innovation and, 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 and rate of change. Um, for me, I, I find that like, what I've learned, there's like one thing I've learned in my life is that I, I like to surround myself with people who have similar steep learning curves or desire to have steep learning curves and are ready to kind of roll up their sleeves and get get the job done. 
I was the kid in college um, who tried out for all the Division One sports teams and didn't really make it. Um, so I was always kind of really pushing myself hard. I mean, to be fair, I made it an ice hockey and then I ended up blowing out my knee, uh, a year later. So my tenure was short, but, um, so I spent my summers interning. Um, I thought at the time I would be, uh, wall street focused. And then I put pivoted quickly to work with founders. Um, so, so in that process, I've, uh, I've worked at Charles Schwab. I've worked for um, four companies that have been acquired. I spent some time at Google and now I'm at Snap. So it's been a long history. You know, I, uh, I very much, I look back at all of my roles and they all kind of, I've learned something and everything I've done. And I think that's been what continues to motivate me to, to do new things. Um, is the ever, you know, the forever quest to continue to learn, which is that steep learning curve thing. I think we were talking about earlier, which gets me out of bed in the morning. Yeah. I think that's such an important thing as well about kind of being able to look back on a career that is so different with so many different roles and seeing the things you learned. Cause I think there's this huge, and we talked about this a lot on the podcast with the stories we set out for ourselves. Um, there's this huge kind of misconception when you're graduating from college that it's going to be a straight line that every role needs to be in a similar field and needs to be kind of building on each other to get to that point. But when you talk to successful people like yourself and other people, you kind of see more that there's all these diverse different roles that taught them something that they apply in different fields. I, it's funny you say that. I look at life as a process of elimination, not uh, a focus on, you know, what I want to, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I know what I don't want to be. Could you give, give us a pretty memorable example of a piece of learning that kind of validates that idea for you, whether it's, uh, you know, a su successful experience in working with the founders or a failed mm -hmm. sales pitch, maybe? What did you learn from it? Um, it's a good question. I, uh, I've sat through a lot of failed sales pitches. I've actually failed many times pitching um, and hopefully you take something from all of them. For me though, uh, my epiphany moment was in San Francisco working on the capital markets and trading desk uh, for a large broker dealer and working 3 a.m., 3.30 a.m. to about 1 p.m. because we were working in New York time with you know the New York your stock exchange and the NASDAQ all on East coast time. And you have to get in a couple hours before the markets open. Uh, I'm working with large, uh, asset managers, Invesco, Janice, California pension. So CalPERS. And I'm doing the same thing every day, five days a week, You're making a ton of money. Like I'm overachieving where I thought I would be a couple of years out of college with on the income side. But I tell you, um, I've never been more miserable and the, uh, the hardest thing for me, which is, you know, and this is not a, this is not a failed sales pitch and we can get into that if you'd like, but I quit and, and my parents thought I was crazy because I've always wanted to be on wall street and I've been moved to San Francisco, the, the West coast desk to take on a, you know, a more senior level role 
I was making good money. I was doing exactly what they thought I wanted to do. Um, and I quit and I didn't quit because I had put a lot of money in the bank. It wasn't that much money. Um, I quit cause I literally found myself falling apart. I, I wasn't happy. Um, happy with the people I was working with. I didn't find them to be interesting, nor did I find them to be uh, caring um, or nurturing and anything. I thought maybe they didn't even want me there because I was younger and um, probably paid less. But um, when I moved to Headland Digital Media is when, you know, I, I took an 85, I think it was 75% pay cut. I don't know how many people take 75% pay cuts in their life, um, you know, willingly. Um, you can put me on the top of that list, but uh, that wasn't easy. I had to reconfigure my entire life. So as I wasn't to go into debt. And, um, but in that moment, I, I learned so much about myself and, and found a new energy to succeed in what it was I was doing. And I've never really looked back. That's such an amazing story. And, you know, I know you talked about a little bit that idea of how you had that set life goal is what you thought you wanted to do. And then once you went in, and that must have been really difficult when you commit so many years to kind of that goal, and then deciding to pivot. Definitely took me, it wasn't like I woke up one morning and quit, (laughs) right? Like, it was a process. and, And there was boxes I needed to check to get there because I knew that once I left that role, there was no way I was going to end up back in a position as, as lucrative of a position. Um, but working through that process was probably one of the more influential moments of my life and allowed me to kind of take stock of what I re- what was really important to me and, and, and what other what I what uh, and, and what others probably had influenced me to think that was really important to me, uh, but at the end of the day it wasn't. So, so yeah, I uh, that was a that was a big moment. There was another one back in college when I blew out my knee and I uh, in a hockey game, varsity hockey game, my beginning of my sophomore year, the end of my career, so to speak. Um, and uh, you know that was another moment. I find that these moments in life where you make drastic change or are confronted by something as uh, you know serious as, as physical injury um, are opportunities to kind of reassess what you've done and where it is you want to go. Um, and and I, I think some of the best learning I've had in these moments is to actually take the time as much as you can to go through the process and to think of it as an opportunity and not a setback. Yeah, I think that kind of mental shift is huge because I know um, when we talk to a lot of people um, about kind of future plans, there's kind of a, a feeling that if you dedicate yourself to something for years or months or whatever, it's really hard to say, okay, I'm going to do something brand new because you kind of feel like you're starting over or starting from behind. Yeah, and sure, there, there's definitive, you often do take steps back and I put back in air quotes, not that anyone can see it, but um, I say back because yes, in, in some capacity, you, you may have to take a, a you know, a, a more junior role or uh, uh, take home, you know, a, a, a lower salary or whatever it might be. But at the end, like, there are transferable skills out there. And, and I think that those who focus on transferable skills and focus on what they're good at and how it transfers, we just fine. Um, 
all businesses are selling something, products, services, fundraising, whatever it might be, you know, yeah, there's a lot of similarities to business, probably just as many similarities as there are differences. Um, and you need to focus on, again, what you're good at and how you align to the goals of the organization that you're hoping to join or build. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up, you know, the, the transferable skills and the idea mm -hmm. that all businesses are selling something. Storytelling, this, that craft, mm -hmm. that, that skill is an integral part of uh, being a salesperson. So, you know, how important is storytelling to you uh, being on both ends of uh, sales pitches? So if you think about stories in business, we often work with our clients to identify instances that we'd like to replicate sales we'd like to replicate and you know work with them to create case studies in, in school we talk about case studies to kind of better understand the topic and, and work through uh, uh all the bits and pieces that go along with it but like if you think about storytelling or case studies right this has gone back thousands of years um this is a, this is a, you know, it was used, you know, I, I like to think about it as like, you know, the ancient Greeks carved their language on the walls, you know, um, in stone, our grandparents used the, you know, the radio and, and, and newspapers and, and we use things like social media and, and, and digital channels, but um, stories are memorable. And they've always been memorable. They stick, right? Telling stories is one of the most, if you ask me, powerful uh, mediums or means that a leader has to influence, teach, um, and inspire their teams. So, you know, through stories, you forge connections with, with, with people. And, and at the end of the day, businesses are a collection of people still, even, even with artificial intelligence and all this other stuff coming down the pipe. Um, and um, they convey everything from culture and history and values, right? That unite or 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 don't, uh, you know, large groups of people. So um, it's it's literally um, telling stories are literally the uh, it's, it's like the secret weapon. Um, telling effective stories are the secret weapon to just being memorable. And being memorable is the the manner in which often uh salespeople make sales because they get so, they cut through the competition no i mean obviously we 100 percent agree with that kind of sentiment that's kind of what the whole podcast is about and i really appreciate you kind of taking that and distilling that in that way how but how do we become better storytellers in your experience um like practice <laughs> practice 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 never stop practicing but uh, I think uh, you, to become a better storyteller, one must spend time with those who are good at telling stories or good at teaching how to tell stories, I would argue. Um, and, and then going out and rolling up their sleeves and, and, and failing over and over and over again until they get it right. There, there's like, it's, uh, some I, I firmly believe the best stories are not yet told. So, uh, you know, find your style um, and perfect it. So in, in your case, have you found um, a certain style or certain characteristics uh, for yourself in terms of storytelling that's working for you? It's a, it's a good one. I tend to align my styles with those who I am 
speaking to and those two who are listening to the story. Um, and I tend to ensure that they want to hear the story before I start down the path. Um, so, you know, for me, I, I'm also, I find personally better conversationally than pontificating, right? So like I have all these little, after, you know, you know, almost 30 years in, in the, in the workforce, like you, I have all the, I have like a, it's a, it's like a laundry list of boxes that I'd love to check knowing that I'll only get to check a few of them at any given moment. So I, I try and adapt what it is I want to communicate to that, to who I am speaking with. And, and if it's a CEO, it's going to be very different than if it's someone whose hands are on the keyboard, so to speak, and are using the product or the software or the service. So, you know, for me, there's no one style uh, that, that works for me. As far as the style that works for me, if I'm on the receiving end of the story, if I'm the buyer, so to speak, um, I expect the sim similar courtesies that I, that I give. I, I would say, again, all sorts of styles work, but what doesn't work <laughs> is easier to kind of zero in on. And that's things like pitching me for services and products I haven't asked for or I don't even know I need, so to speak. Like those come all the time, especially through email or LinkedIn or, or, or whatnot. Um, pitches before establishing, you know, so that need is very important. Um, I, I would, there's no guarantees in life, but I'd much rather reply to someone and say, hey, nice to meet you. Sounds like an interesting product or service you're offering before um, they jump into the pitch. More often than not, you'll get an email that just goes right into the pitch from someone you have no idea who it is. And if, if they think for a minute, like I'm reading that email, like when you have a hundred others to read, it, it, it just disappears. I don't even know where it goes. Um, and I was in the email business for a while. Um, but, uh, you know, so I would say the ones, the best case scenario, establish a rapport, a relationship, a need um, before you go into your pitch. After that, you know, surprise and delight me if you can, but I understand not everyone can. So not every product is surprising, is worth surprise and delight. So, um, you know, if I need something, I'm listening. I guess that's the, that's the point of the story. That makes a lot of sense. I know we've been really wanting to get someone like you who's worked in like early stage companies and ventures on the podcast, because I'm very fascinated about that field and how in the pitch and telling a good story. Can you tell us a little bit high level how important storytelling is to pitching a company and these kind of some of this key tips you've learned from watching a lot of these pitches? Early stage companies tend to not be fully resourced, right? The CEO might be raising money at the same time as trying to close companies, close customers. So you go from one meeting where you're raising money, next meeting you're trying to make a sale, the next meeting you're in a product uh, steering committee meeting or something, and then you're in an interview, right? Like, so you're all over the place. And I think in early stage companies to get, and if this is, if this is not what you meant, you know, just let me know, but like to get that, get the attention of the, of the, of the CEO or the buyer, um, it's all about establishing a relationship or rapport and need before going into the pitch, um, which is very hard to do. 
And on the reverse side, if you're selling for an early stage company, you have to understand that they're like Fortune 500 clients and whatnot. The first thing they're going to want to know, even if they love your solution, is that you're going to be around tomorrow to service them. Um, so like, I'd rather buy the enterprise technology, you know, the enterprise IT company, and there's plenty of them, you know, multi-billion dollar businesses out there, Oracle's, Adobe, Salesforce. I'd rather buy their service, even though it's going to cost me five times as much, because I know they're going to be around this time next year. And, you know, the integration and whatnot is going to be way too much time, way, you know, way too time consuming, uh, uh, to, 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 to putz around with someone who, even if they have a better solution, may not be around. So establishing that credibility um, is, is, is paramount. And, and I would say the first thing um, you need to do after you've, you've kind of established a relationship. And the best salespeople I've seen tell stories. Again, they go back to after listening and acquiring as much information as possible on the opportunity or the customer, potential customer, um, they craft a really good story that pulls in all sorts of lookalike data uh, that pulls that 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 basically proves to the buyer that the company is uh, is capable of doing something above and beyond. To wrap up uh, everyone of our episode, we have this segment called suspenders. So how it works is we ask you a very random, fun question, and you can give us any random answer you feel like. Yeah. So our question for the day is, what animal would be cutest if it's scaled down to the size of a cat? My first reaction was like a dragon or something, but that's kind of mythical. I don't know, maybe a cow or an elephant would be uh, really cute if it was uber miniature. I've heard this story a little bit different, this question a little bit differently. Um, and it's usually around uh, pick two animals, one large, one small. So the way I tend to, and I've asked this in interviews, I've uh, asked this just over beers, catching up with uh, colleagues, um, but would you rather be a horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? So basically, you'd rather be a really, really big duck or a bunch of really small horses. <laughs> I would say and a big why? duck because coordination. It'd be Got so it. hard to organize a bunch of small horses. <laughs> I'd go the other way because I don't want to be that like hard to not notice when you're a duck. Like horses. <laughs> I, I, I like strength in numbers and teams. Love it. There you go. You just got the job. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is um, this is something a friend of mine used to ask back when I worked at Google years ago. I can tell you there's always uh, some fun responses, but we've then kind of taken it and used it in other capacities. But the why is always the more interesting thing than the actual response, which is, you know, the response is so outrageous. The question is so outrageous that people forget often, unless they have time to think about it. And Kevin, you did go second, so maybe you have time to think about it. Um, unless they have time to think about it, um, they tend to forget like where they are and what they're doing. And 
like you did, you brought it right back to like professional business and whatnot. Um, but many don't. So what do you look for from an answer in an interview standpoint? All the why, right? There's no wrong answer. So it's just, it's all about how you think. And because it's such an outrageous question that knocks people off guard, um, you get some really interesting responses. And in when you're trying to assess candidates in, you know, an hour <laughs> and you have to work with them for you know, 10 hours a day, five days a week, you know, for eternity, so to speak, like sometimes you want to knock someone off the, out of their comfort zone and give them a little bit of a, uh, a surprise, especially if you're working in, you know, innovative industries. Often those environments are not as emotionally kind of safe as uh, more traditional spaces where you kind of know what to expect. Those type of uh, questions help just bring people together, make things a little bit more comfortable, people more real, a little bit less uh, standoffish. It all ties back to storytelling in that way, uh, getting to the why of the story, trying to figure out how you would explain this, think on your feet, and one of the essential tips for interviewing. It's interesting. So I, I've always lived by the, not always, I, I've learned to over, my career, um, but this is something I believe now for at least a decade is that focusing on building strong, diverse teams can mean the difference between like successful companies and not so. Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we sit down and dissect and analyze some of the really key and interesting learnings we just got from my expert storyteller. Keb, what did you think of that conversation? Well, I think in terms of our storytelling theme, this is a conversation that's kind of unique in that expanded across a lot of different topics. But specifically in terms of storytelling, I think one key takeaway uh, from that is that um, establishing rapport with your listener is a key prerequisite is a crucial prerequisite to telling your story. You know, we talk so much about uh, how to craft our story into such a way that our listeners are able to better perceive, but it's also important for them to establish trust so that they're naturally more prone to listening to what we have to say. And, you know, that being said, it is definitely very important to build that connection uh, with our listener even before we come in to tell our story. You know, that ties back to something that both Tara and Drea talked about in previous episodes, that when you're telling a story, remember who your audience is and remember that they are also human. So Matt, in our conversation, talked about building that rapport and that is so important and it's something to remember in any type of communication because really, as Matt was telling us, every communication, every interview, every conversation is all really about storytelling. What I loved about this episode was that it was actually really difficult for us to come up with our kind of planning for it because literally he has so many such innovative and interesting positions. We could have done podcasts on every single one. So we had a big list of questions and I think we got through what, two of them, Kevin? <laughs> yeah, more or less. And we were just in awe of him the whole time and because he's such a successful person he has such a diverse uh, background we got to do a little bit more high level with him and talk about 
storytelling in careers and pivoting. And I think that is one of the most crucial lessons that Matt talked about was the ability to look at his career as his storyline, his career, and not of finding what he wants to do, but finding what he doesn't want to do and be able to not get trapped in what he decided he was doing and not getting trapped in the ideas why I put so much time in this and being able to say, I don't want to do this and pivoting. And that technique for him has led to an amazing career. Yeah, it's that process of elimination that he talked about, trying to find a motivation that'll get you up every morning uh, to keep going. And you just sometimes you just got to try things out and see what doesn't work so that you can try it try to move forward from that and find what works better. You know, this really feels like a capstone episode for us that ties so many different lessons together by accident. Because this goes back to something that Taylor was telling us in the very first episode about not getting trapped in the storylines and how college students believe that it's going to be a linear path which gets us trapped in that fear of deviating from it when Matt just said, hey, I started trying things and what I didn't like, I crossed it off and I tried something new. Yeah, and if we're going down that path, we can also, this also reminds me of uh, what Larry talks about and in terms of his own winding path from acting into career coaching and the idea of being bold and trying to do your own thing and uh, follow what, follow what you're enthusiastic about so a lot of great learnings well there you have it this has been another great episode of the linen suit and plastic dye podcast we will see you next week